The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, November 6, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Fox News today embarrassed itself slash engaged in brand extension when it published an excerpt of a book by author Doug Weed writing about CIA officers in the Trump administration. Weed quotes a source as saying, next thing they said was that in the previous administration, they spent a lot of time in the White House doing nonstop PC, parentheses, political correctness meetings. They would have a meeting every week, and at the conclusion of the meeting, there was always the suggestion, let's meet again in two weeks. Nothing was ever resolved. Immediately, hundreds of people caught the mistake made by Doug Weed, author of Game of Thorns, the inside story of Hillary Clinton's failed campaign and Donald Trump's winning strategy. And it was that PC, in this context, does not stand for political correctness. It stands for Principles Committee, the inner circle of the National Security Council. When told of the error, Fox conceded, but a careful vetting of Doug Weed's oeuvre might be in order. For instance, there was this assertion that John F. Kennedy created a PC or political correctness agency, which sent idealistic young Americans throughout the world to help indigenous peoples. That PC was even said to be the toughest job you'll ever love. Cue drums. Wait, I have the audio. Peace Corps, the toughest job you will ever love. Oh, okay. Not political correctness, huh? All right, well, there was the story that we'd broke that PC had gone so far as to allow gay couples to get married. At least no religious institution would be heartened by Weed's reporting that PC or political correctness paved the way for gay couples to be married. The Presbyterian Church USA just paved the way for same-sex couples to get married. Oh, I guess also the wrong PC. Uh, We did uncover the fact that the U.S. Consumer Information Center was practically based on political correctness. The new catalog is free. Right Consumer Information Center, Pueblo, Colorado, 81009. Oh, right. Makes me wonder about Weed's extensive reporting that the Beatles wore politically correct suits, or that political correctness coached the Seahawks to a Super Bowl, or that political correctness can feel it coming in the air tonight, or maybe that political correctness was a place said to be where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. It's all kind of embarrassing. You've got to wonder if Fox distances themselves from Doug Weed or if they stand by their man, as political correctness famously sang. On the show today, who to believe when they tell you not to believe? The polls. But first, along with co-author and economist Darren Asamoglu, James Robinson's 2012 book, Why Nations Fail, was an epic treatise on, well, just that. Now, the two have taken their acumen and understanding of history to pinpoint the thin slice of opportunity that allows nations to thrive, that allows liberty to take hold. Their analogy and title is that of a narrow corridor. In this interview, we will refer to a diagram that shows the different states that allow for liberty to flourish. You can totally understand and appreciate the arguments without the visual, but if you want the visual, it's in the show notes today. And now, in your ears, James Robinson, co-author of The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty.
Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Sometimes on this show, we get into picayune details, we get into trivia, we get into effluvia. Today, I want to go back, way back, and talk about pretty much the biggest issues in the world today. Joining me now is James Robinson. He, along with his co-author, Darren Asimoglu, have written The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty. If you recognize the names of those two authors, yes, about seven years ago, they wrote the seminal book, Why Nations Fail, which a lot of people have been thinking of lately. This is their newest effort to sort of redefine our experiment in civilization. Hello, Professor Robinson. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Let's talk Leviathans and Hobbes, shall we not? I mean, this is an obvious place to start when you're talking about how to define liberty and society. Was your mental process to start with Hobbes or to think about these issues? And then you said, you know, it really does come back to Hobbes. Yeah, I think we start with Hobbes. But as soon as you start thinking about Hobbes, you see, you know, how problematic many of the things he said were and many of his arguments. So it's about Hobbes, but it's also about broadening and uh, complicating the Hobbes's argument about, you know, what is it that creates liberty in a society? Right. Well, to be fair to Hobbes, you know, he was writing in uh, the 1650s <laughs> and he was ahead of his time then. And also he was living in an age, I suppose, that called out for order from chaos. And our age is a little different from that. Yes, that's right. I mean, he was writing in the middle of the English uh, Civil War, and and he was, you know, he was saying, you know, that the solution to this was very strong central authority, a state, which would stop this state of war, as he called it, and provide, you know, basic order and public goods. And our starting point is that, well, actually, you know, that might have looked like a good idea in the 1650s, but if you look at history, you see that leviathans of that sort, it's just as common that they actually create war as stop it. So you have to think about the governance of the Leviathan and in whose interests the Leviathan works and whose preferences it represents. So the governance of the state is critical. And that's that's a crucial part of the book. And when Hobbes was talking about war, he spells it W-A-R-R-E. And it doesn't just mean war, W-A-R. It meant sort of all manner of oppression and all manner of privation and all manner of anarchy. Absolutely. And, and the threat of it, it didn't actually have to happen. It was just the potential for it could have enormous consequences for people's uh, lives. So yes, it's a very rich argument. It's not just about international warfare as we might think about it. Right. So I read Why Nations Fail, and I've been thinking about it. I think a lot of people have since populism began to sweep through Europe and then in the United States. This is, well, you tell me, but I look at this book as an acknowledgement that success is not the same as not failure. I, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you know the, the connection between this book and Why Nations Fail is really, you know, we're trying to get much deeper into the long-run political dynamics that create inclusive political institutions. And we're trying to unwrap, in some sense, the challenges that politically inclusive societies 
face. You know, and the idea of the narrow corridor is, you know, within this corridor, there's a balance between state and society, which is critical for having inclusive political institutions. But there's dangers on either side of the corridor. You know, there's dangers when the state becomes too strong and starts to dominate society. But there's also dangers when society becomes too strong or disillusioned with inclusive political institutions. And that's something that is not at all in Why Nations Fail. Um, you know, that I think we emphasize very much these kind of elite overthrow of inclusive political institutions, such as the case of Venice historically. But we underplayed, you know, you try to make these arguments simple. And, you know, anyone can make a complicated argument about the world, you know, so our job as social scientists, as social scientists is to try to find a simple way of talking about these things. And I think at the time, we didn't really have a way of talking about that. So we just sort of finessed it. But obviously, in the world today, you see, it's not elite, you know, discontent that's created Trumpism or Duterte or, you know, many of these other movements. It's actually popular discontent with the way things are. And we couldn't talk about that in Why Nations Fail, but, but we can with this book. So you're right, you know, that's a perceptive comment that this framework allows us to illustrate much better these challenges to inclusive political institutions. Mm, I want to uh, I want to follow up on exactly some of what you just said, but I also want to bring up the example of Singapore because I think in the last book that was considered it was often held out as a very useful counterexample for some of its neighbors and other states. It, it is a non-failed state. It is it is a highly functional state if you judge it based on s failure. But if you judge it based on the narrow corridor, I don't know how much liberty a Singaporean would have or Singapore society would have. And I wonder if Singapore is an example of uh, the despotic Leviathan than the shackled Leviathan, which is your framework for a roughly functioning state. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, I'd say China is probably a better example than, than Singapore. You know, that no theory explains everything. And I think, you know, it's very difficult to, to base a theory of comparative development around the case of Singapore because, you know, it's a small state, it's an island, you know. Uh, it wasn't a poor country in 1960. It had many modern institutions. And it's, you know, it's had a remarkable... It's had a remarkable history of leadership, you know, with a kind of vision that's lacking in most poor countries. And, you know, that's very hard as a social scientist to sort of explain where that came from. So I, I yeah, you know, it's not liberal in the Western sense, but it's not like China either. So so if it's despotic, it's a fairly soft sort of despotism, mm -hmm. uh, Singapore, I would say. I mean, I think the Chinese case is much clearer, obviously, or North Korea, or, you know, so so that's, that's a better example for us. And, you know, here you're raising this other issue, I think, which is very different from why nations fail, which is, you know, we're trying to talk, not just about economic development, of course, that's important. But also, you know, things that we think are fundamentally significant for, for the quality of, you know, human life, and what is it that makes society desirable. And, you know, this is this notion of liberty, I think that's something we value a lot, but where does that come from? You know, and how do you explain the enormous variation in that in the world? Now, I want my listeners to f think of, because there are a lot of graphs in the book, so I, wanna th I want them to think of two axes. 
And when you talk about the narrow corridor, it's pretty much right in the middle of the two axes. So it would be the line at a 45 degree angle from uh, the zero point. And the two axes are a strong state and a strong society. Now, a strong state, I think we all yeah. understand. And if it gets too strong, it gets despotic and it oppresses its people. But a strong society isn't the same as a weak state. And it's not exactly the same as anarchy. So tell me what you mean by the strong society, because I think it's a really interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, we mean how society is organized, you know, its ability to act collectively, mobilize. And that, you know, that that terminology bundles, you know, many things into into it. You know, let, let me give you an example, you know, I mean, and I think this is why the concept of liberty is so interesting, you know, so, so if you talked about China, you know, that would be an example of what we call a despotic Leviathan, where the, where the state is strong and society is very weak. And then you could say, well, there's not much liberty in China, right, you know, but then there's many other parts of the world that definitely don't look anything like China. Look at, think about Yemen, you mm-hmm. know, Yemen, there's not much liberty in Yemen either, but but the state domi- doesn't dominate society. In fact, there's hardly any state at all in Yemen. In fact, it's society. All power and authority is actually in society. And society is very organized through tribes and kinship groups and you know, which which operate completely autonomously from the from the state and, and have resisted the state. In fact, you know, the, the, the big story about the Houthi rebellion in some sense uh, in Yemen is it's a, it's a rebellion of against society, against the state, to control the state, to get the state back in its place. So, so there society is organized and the state isn't, you know, and that doesn't create liberty either, you know, but it's very different from China. And I guess the, mo- the more we thought about those sorts of examples in Lebanon, you know, the Philippines, Pakistan, you know, Afghanistan, you know, it's not that the state dominates society in Afghanistan, the state has never ruled the mountains in Afghanistan, never just the river valleys and the plains. And so we wanted to have a framework to think about that, you know, one frame which we could help us put all of that together. Are there examples in the industrialized world, or maybe not, because that's one of the things that makes it industrialized, of a really, really strong society? So you talk about Afghanistan, Yemen, I understand it's tribal, it goes back thousands of years, but are there more modern examples? Maybe society has gotten ahead of the state? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great question, you know, and that, that in some sense, you're raising here one of the, what we think is the most original and interesting parts of the book. Because, yes, it's true that, you know, society in Yemen, you know, is powerful compared to Chinese society. But I would say society in the United States or Western Europe is even more powerful than Yemen because it's outgrown or it's dissolved these tribal structures or kinship structures. And it's able to act you know, on a much broader and much larger basis. So that's that's an even more powerful society from our perspective because it can broaden the agenda. It can it can get out of the parochialness of tribes, which can be very effective. But this could be even more effective. So from our perspective, you know, the society in the United States is even more powerful than and and that's part of this process of what we call the red queen effect it's part of this competition between the state and society and in that competition both state and society change and and i you know so that's my that's that's the argument Right. And the Red Queen effect is that reference to Alison or Lewis Carroll yeah. where you have to yeah. pretty much run to keep up. So you're saying that a very well functioning western european or maybe i hope still american 
experiment is strong society and the and the state is commensurately strong with the society. And that's that's where you get liberty. Exactly. Is there any examples on the other end of that access? Like the state and society are both equally weak and that's working out in terms of liberty? Not not too much. I mean, we have a we have a concept which comes right at the end of towards the end of the book, you know, which we call the paper Leviathan, uh, which is there are parts of the world. And I, you know, I think of Latin America like this, where, you know, you take a country like Colombia, you know, that you have a weak state and a and a weak society. So you're sort of more balanced, but Mm -hmm. you get stuck there. And the Red Queen effect never comes into operation. So, so. But that's there's not liberty, you know, in that in that context. You know, uh, Colombia was, you know, for many years the kidnapping, homicide, and drug capital of the world. Yeah, and it's still they've had a they've you, they've maybe we hope are just getting out of uh, essentially a fifty year civil war. Yeah, I think that most Latin American countries are fairly they're fairly stuck in that situation. But on the other hand, you could sort of say, well, from the point of view of our framework, in, in many ways, there's room for optimism there, because you sort of if they're in this balance, then that's a heck of a lot better than, you know, China or Yemen. And there's actually some prospect maybe that if you gave a push in the right place, and we discuss a little bit that towards the end of the book, you could get this Red Queen effect going, and you could get Latin America moving. So, you know, that, that's one way of thinking about it. James Robinson, along with Darren Asimoglu, is the author of The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty. If you don't read it for the diagram we talked about, read it for details about intentionally wounding dogs with a powder of sympathy. I won't say any more, but what a detail. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. And now the spiel. Beware ideologues arguing not just for their policies, but for the popularity of their policies. It's one thing to advocate for a policy, to explain why it's the right policy, why it will help people, why once becomes law, the population will come to support it. You can assert that. It's another thing when they start telling you that the policy is already popular, much more popular than you might imagine, much more popular than available evidence indicates. It is so curious how often the advocates of a policy, say Medicare for all or tax cuts for the top 10% or this or that military intervention or raising the Pentagon budget or lowering the Pentagon budget or the Defense of Marriage Act, they'll often tell you that that's the right policy, it's wise and good, but also, despite other indications, people like it. It's popular, maybe even secretly popular. Medicare for all does not poll well. That is not the end all and be all of the issue. There are reasons to pursue Medicare for all, despite the fact that Medicare for all is less popular than less ambitious proposals. But notice what I said, despite the fact that Medicare for all is less popular than less ambitious proposals. I want to establish my credentials and tell you some pol- a list of policies that I favor. These all have something in common. You ready? I favor registering all handguns, a 60-day waiting period for guns. I favor laws allowing abortion to be performed by a doctor at any stage in a pregnancy. I want to end the death penalty. I favor the reenfranchisement of ex-felons in Kentucky. And I favor eliminating pennies. What all those things have in common is that they are unpopular. And I am not here to lie to you, to trick you, 
to somehow assert, oh no, they really are popular, just because I think they're good policies. I mean, advocates of abolishing the death penalty can cite so many polls about changing attitudes and different circumstances where localities abolish the death penalty and it worked out and governors abolished the death penalty and they were popular. But the evidence, it's clear. It's just clear. Wish it weren't this way, but the death penalty remains significantly favored by more Americans than not. Same with every policy I cited. I'm in favor of all of them. Americans aren't. Pennies are close. YouGov asked, would you favor or oppose eliminating the penny coin so that the lowest value coin available would be the nickel? 16% said favor strongly. 18% said favor somewhat whereas the opposition opposed strongly or somewhat was 51% and 14 weren't sure. So it's kind of close, but I'm not going to lie. My anti-penny policy is not popular. I do wonder, if I were a supporter of Medicare for all, would I convince myself that everyone else agreed with me? At Politicon, Kyle Kulinski cited this statistic. When you look at a Medicare for all poll and it says 70% are in favor of it, and even 52% of Republicans are in favor of it, it's really a political no-brainer in the direction of fight for it. What? 70% are in favor? 70% of Americans are in favor? No, it's just not true. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation's latest healthcare tracking poll, a small majority of adults say they would favor putting all Americans in a single national healthcare plan. 51% in favor, 47% opposed. But the margin shrunk significantly from the beginning of the year when it was 57% back in the proposal, 37% opposed. As my colleague and honest broker on this, Jordan Weissman, wrote, the phrase Medicare for all tended to poll well early on, but its popularity tended to drop once respondents were told it would require them to give up private insurance. Pew has been polling on this over and over again. They found that 44% of all Democrats preferred Medicare for all. The popularity goes down when another option is introduced in the conversation or introduced in the poll. And since every debate we're seeing, there's more than one option introduced. Biden and Buttigieg do not favor Medicare for all. They'll tell you so. Buttigieg calls it Medicare for all those who want it. But once you mention that, it's accurate to say that Medicare for all is less popular than popular. Now, what about this idea that 52% of Republicans want Medicare for all? I tracked it down. It comes from a poll from Hill TV, you know, the Hill newspaper. Uh, they apparently have some, t it's not a TV channel. They play videos, whether you want them to or not. And a polling company called Harris X, I guess that's the uh, regular Harris poll to the extreme. Da -da 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 -da. Harris X is an online poll. They are not even in 538's database of pollsters. Their parent company, or I guess legacy company, Harris Poll, that rates a C plus. But none of that even matters. I'm not trying to discredit the pollster per se. They don't think they have much credit. Just listen to the phrasing of their poll. Would you support or oppose providing Medicare for every American? Well, if I was asked that, I'd say, I support it. Who doesn't want Medicare when they reach that age? I mean, they've been paying into it. I think it's wrong to deny Americans Medicare. See the problem with that ridiculous question framing? So to believe in the idea of Medicare for all is a good idea, are you required to buy that it's a popular idea? I guess you are. I haven't met too many people who will say I like it, but I know most people don't. I actually haven't heard anyone say that on a TV station after one of these debates. I don't know. Maybe 
we're only listening to advocates and they feel that by dishonestly framing support or, you know, citing polls favorable to themselves, that it's more likely to get it passed and then we'll have it and then people will like it and it's a good policy. So do whatever you can ends justifying the means. As a journalist, not an activist, I have no qualms about acknowledging that some ideas, even some ideas that I favor are unpopular. Not that unpopular is dispositive or disqualifying. It's just a statement of fact, a statement of what my fellow Americans think about this issue. Every idea that's good and proper is not good and popular. Same phenomenon is taking hold with Elizabeth Warren's candidacy at large. Elizabeth Warren's doing quite well. She's at or near the top in all the national polls and in most of the early states. Six days ago, the New York Times in Siena published this headline and the poll that backed it up. Warren leads tight Iowa race as Biden fades, poll finds. And the Warren supporters retweeted that exuberantly. Yet a couple days ago, when there was a poll that showed Warren doing less well than President Trump in key swing states, and that poll was also by the New York Times and Siena, those same people dismissed it and shouted, oh, why would you trust the centrists at the New York Times for your polling data? Centrist pundits, I think, overread that poll. Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine ran an article under their headline, New Poll Shows Democratic Candidates Have Been Living in a Fantasy World. (laughs) Whereas progressive types like the activist Jess McIntosh and the activist David Atkins, activist slash writer, journalist, they tweeted out a different poll with different results that showed Warren doing better in swing states. Only that poll was not taken by the New York Times and Siena College, but was taken by Data for Progress, which is a very progressive polling firm. Its head, Sean McElwee, hosted the gist. He's a justice Democrat. He's an AOC backer and activist. But his results tend to, who would have guessed, advance his overall worldview. I'm not here to argue, to look at the poll and the Data for Progress poll and the New York Times, Siena poll. I'm not here to argue one's right and one's wrong. I'm here to criticize arguments which all flow from the way that the activists want their policy to be regarded. It's already regarded as popular. Watch out from the handcuffing of we believe in the rightness of this stance to we believe in the popularity of this stance especially when there's lots of other evidence that the stance is not as popular as all that. If you spent a lot of time denigrating the New York Times result that showed Warren trailing Trump by a little in Wisconsin, I mean, it showed Trump beating Warren by 2% in Wisconsin. I mean, this poll literally showed Biden beating Trump by 2% in Wisconsin and Warren losing to Trump by 2% in Wisconsin. That's so hard to believe that that needs to be rebutted especially because a data for progress poll says otherwise ever so slightly. I don't know which or if either of these polls are right. I do know that both of the polls are within a margin of error of about four and a half. So that the polls themselves are saying that either Biden or Trump or Warren could very well win in Wisconsin. And oh, by the way, the elections in a year. Are you doing a service by dismissing the notion that it's really quite possible in five states that all voted for Trump in 2016 that Trump is slightly more popular than Elizabeth Warren? You're doing a lot of work to scoff at that notion put forth by a New York Times Siena College poll. And by the way, that notion happens to align with your own preferences. 
In one way, this whole thing's been an argument about a subjective take on a snapshot that's within a margin of error. I get that. But globally, what it really is is an argument about examining the biases of arguers when considering the argument. We should take into account what is good. We should also know what is popular. We shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, but we should also not automatically mistake the good for the popular. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader, who believes there's a narrow corridor between self-awareness and a smug unwillingness to change because, hey, it's just me. You know me. Going to put Shatner in that corridor. Christina DeJosa, just producer, thinks there's a narrow corridor between a good old-fashioned red sauce Italian place and is the owner doing some Lady in the Tramp reenactment here? The gist. We believe in the narrow corridor between not forgetting where you came from and going on and on and on about how that used to be a Nathan's and that used to be a Ramada with a rotating restaurant. Yeah, it, oh, it actually rotated. Yeah, I'd see it. Oomperu, tapru, jupru, and thanks for listening.